What's up guys and girls, this is Brock Ashby here. Welcome to episode number 15 of the Better With Brock podcast. I'm here with Tony Bataji. So to give you a bit of background about him, he was the guy that all of the personal trainers here in Sydney, when I first started at Fitness First Market Street in 2016, so six years ago, they were all talking about go and see Bataji. And I was like, looking at all these exercises, I saw the front foot elevated dumbbell split squat for the first time and I, I asked the trainer where they get that from and they were like, oh, it's Tony. So I signed up for his courses immediately and I went out and, and, and did the course. I did, I think, I'm, I think I did all the levels, fat loss, hypertrophy, there was some cardio in there as well. And he's, he's one of the big reasons why I developed as a personal trainer and also saw more than just uh, I don't know, personal training as just a fun thing to do. He really showed me the science behind it, how to get really good. So massive props to, to Tony right here. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I, no, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to hear that story and and to to see the kids like you coming through and then and becoming a really big deal. So I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, it's, um, well, I, thanks, mate. But I, you know, I want to give props to you because your course is out there and well, it was, it's in Mossman, where we are now, mm. um, where I moved. Um, you know, it was the first time, as I said, where it was like, I said to you earlier on the podcast, it was evidence-based, mm. you know, everything was backed by science and you were like obsessed with books. You had the library there and we were like going in and looking at you do the, and, and you were saying this book and that book. And I still screenshot books that you read at the moment and I go and get them and kind of read up on them. Um, what do you think of, well, first of all, can you explain, I guess, what evidence-based fitness or the community is because it's it's pretty hot right now everyone likes to claim they're evidence-based mm -hmm. can you explain that in layman's terms to people and i i guess what's your thoughts on i would call it like a movement mm. it's a movement because when you consider where the fitness industry has come from before that it really wasn't driven by science it was driven by gurus and whoever was a huge name who would have a huge following and I'm saying he because the giants before that, they were generally males. And they loved having followers. It was almost cult-like. And you as a trainer, you would put after your name who you did courses with. That was your, it wasn't, did you have a Bachelor of Sports Science or a Masters? You would say, comma, whoever you did the course with. And they, a lot of these folks, they knew each other. So there was huge rivalry amongst the big names. And can you drop us some of the big names just for some people out there? Sure. So in the 90s, the biggest name initially was Paul Check, by far and away. And, and so people were, they, they were affectionately known as Czechies, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Paul had a very physiotherapy-like approach. So there was assessments and there were progressions. And it was, he really popularized Swiss ball training and functional training before anyone else did. And... A lot of people like to claim functional training, but Paul Cech really was the father. And Paul Cech, Ian King, and Charles Poliquin, they ran courses together, seminars together, and eventually they had falling outs. And so they all ran their own courses. And Ian King is still around running amazing courses because you can't get better than Ian. He really is. He's been doing it so long. His brain sees the training process in a very unique way. So Ian King's fantastic. Uh, Charles Poliquin is no longer with us. Mm. But he then, he didn't, he, he had a falling out with the other guys and he said, I'm going to run my own courses. And people would claim to be <coughs> a Poliquin devotee or a Paul Czech or a Ian King. So they were the biggest names by far. And there were a few things like you would see with coaches where it was their experience. And if you question that, with science to say, well, if you do that exercise, it's been shown scientifically to impose a very high shear force on your back mm. when you're doing a, I don't know, good morning or a rounded back good morning. And Charles would be famous for saying, yeah, but how many gold medalists has that researcher trained? <laughs> and, and, that, and, and the followers loved that because he could tell stories at the 1988 Olympics, I saw this and I trained this and, and, and there was this cult-like following. And in time, a lot of people took issue with it and called him on it. And, and folks like Brett Contreras, who has done a PhD, would say, well, hang on, Charles, this is not right. 
you, you're making this claim and the science doesn't show that to be the case. So there came a movement and folks like Brad Schoenfeld, um, Brett mm. Contreras, these are a PhD level thinkers who were trainers and coaches. And they really brought in a higher standard of how do you know what you know? Is that a correct way? Is there an alternative way of viewing things? Is it right? And that, that they like to use the term evidence informed rather than so much based because they also realized that, uh, you know, an eight-week study on university students, mm. are, it, it's not the highest level of evidence. It's not like medication. like Yeah, and there's a lot of cherry-picking as well. Some yeah. people will cherry-pick studies just to yeah. back up their confirmation yeah. bias. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, it's, it's fraught with problems. And that's why I, I prefer the term like the, they do is evidence informs. And, and you've got to read the science and the data and it helps you, but you also need to know its limitations, that if you're mm. looking to write a better program based on science, well, that, that will only take you so far. You do need to be informed by what coaches have done over many decades and many years. So I, I know at least in my reading, I certainly read science every day. I read mm. science, but it's not, we're not in a, like a basic science field like chemistry or physics where <laughs> that's all you do is read science. Yeah. We have to read what other coaches do and you chat with them and you have your conversations. How do you approach training a, a Paralympic athlete or a swimmer or a physique competitor? What's your approach over 12 months? And that you blend with what we know about science, biochemistry and anatomy, and then you form your own approach to doing things. So that's more, yes, you are, I guess, based by based in evidence or on evidence, mm. but you still mix that with being a practitioner and, yeah. and like mixing what's in front of you. And that's one thing I guess I learned, what well, have been learning along the way is like there's, I guess, a scientific way of programming that's going to be perfect, but mm. also there's the client, mm. which is like, mm. you know, as you said, we're not just chemicals or we're yeah. not just sitting in a beaker. Yeah. We have emotions, we have behavioral mm problems or habits that we have to take into consideration and sometimes you know doing a five by five for someone would be a really great idea but then they just don't want to do it so you have to kind of mix that in yeah so what would you say your approach to training is it definitely is as you've hinted at it's a blend of science so what Mm. we know about the training process and how to grow muscle how do you lose weight it's it's grounded in what we understand with the basic principles of science but it's also been observation, trying to pay attention to clients, because that's really all I've done as a, an adult. Since the, I became a trainer at 18, I'm now 45, and I've done nothing else. So yeah. it, It's a long run. <laughs> yeah. uh, I counted a few years ago, I was at a conference, and, and they asked me how many sessions I'd done, and I had to quickly do some calculations because in the early years you know, you, you know what it's like when you start that's all you do you work weekends and you train people all day and so, you're counting sessions as well yeah. like, every session <laughs> yeah, absolutely so I've done I've trained over I've done over 60,000 sessions over my life yeah, wow so you pay attention and, and and you can learn things about certain personality types and anatomy types what they're more suited to now interestingly science is doing interesting stuff now so one leg might do leg press doing a drop set and the other leg over eight weeks might do not a drop set but equate the repetitions like do three sets with rest Mm. to see individual differences because when you look at data and it looks at drop sets versus straight sets as an example you might have two people who just don't respond and you might have six that do and are they just outliers or was the volume insufficient for them or what was it? And that's why we now need to start, we need to see data which compares you with you. And that's what a wise personal trainer would do is to realize, well, this is actually not working for this person and maybe they are a different kind of responder. And this goes back to, um, I read a lot of coaches who are really successful and there's two coaches that stand out amongst everyone else. And uh, Grobler, the German rowing coach, is had medalists at every Olympic game since 1972, up until Rio. So amazing. The other is um, Anatoly Bondarchuk, who is a hammer thrower. He was also at the Soviet Union and then went to America. He's very famous for saying that there's essentially three types of athletes. You've got those who thrive on volume, those that thrive on intensity, and those that thrive on variety. Up until even recent times, I would always try and work out whether a client was a Lots of sets or really heavy loads, but not a lot of volume. Mm. But in time, you realize, well, maybe 
30% of my clients are frequency responders and require constant change to the variables. And he had already worked that out in the 70s. So <laughs> reading what good coaches have done and how they see the world, whether they're in a completely different sport, you might not work. I don't work in hammer thrower. I've never trained a hammer thrower. Neither. Uh, <laughs> but, and that's all he does is train hammer throwers. But his understanding of the training process is what I would learn and then apply it to a physique competitor or a fat loss client. So when you look at someone or get someone that is is working with you, how do you determine, like initially you must have a bit of a hunch. Okay, are they, like they look like they can handle a bit of weight or they look like more volume people like, mm-hmm. or they need a, a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. How do you determine which way you start? Because yeah. I think that'll help a lot of people if they are just kind of getting into it. Yeah. How can they identify what will be best for them to save them yeah. years of experimenting because yeah, even myself right. like yeah. you know i started training when i was 14 but I, d- I don't think i made any progress for about 10 years because i was just trying to figure yeah. it out yeah absolutely the I mean, there's a lot of proposed ways of doing it that is find out somebody's one rm and then mm. give them 80 percent of that and then ask them to do as many reps as possible to find out whether they're a fast or a slow twitcher. And that's been generally validated in science that if you bomb really quickly, so you could take 80% of your one RM and you, you bomb at four reps, then you're fast twitch. Yeah. So it would argue that you would do more work in that higher one RM work. High intensity. And I remember this one guy I trained, he was an ultra, he became an ultra runner, but before he became an ultra runner, I gave him 80%. And like, we had to stop him at like 15 reps. Like he's just still going. It's like, you can stop now, right? So clearly he's blessed to be able to go all night. And that's what ultra athletes do. Mm. I find the easiest way is that for all clients, I always start with preparation work. Regardless of what their goals are, they have to learn how to use their body properly. And actually, I'd love you to talk about that because that's one of the biggest things I took away from you is client preparation work. Like when I took in clients, first of all, when I first started as a personal trainer, we talked about this before we jumped on, they kind of just want your money and then they want you to pay rent, but, and then they start educating you on the way, but like ultimately their goal is just to have you as a personal trainer paying rent and qualified. Um, so you kind of get chucked into the gym with not too much knowledge. And even though you may have the best intent, like I've always had with my clients, I don't think I've always done, you know, looking back now, I definitely do things differently, but what I took away from your course was how to prep a client and how to really take one on board and see where their strengths are, see where their weaknesses are, maybe they have imbalances, how to deal with them. But what's the kind of process that you take them through? Sure. Okay. Well, let, let me just... And that's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty long process. Let me finish off on how do you work out which client is what kind of responder well. Yeah. Generally speaking, after a preparation period, I will trial programs that are either volume-based, max strength-based, intensity-based, or really diverse, and I'll change the program every time they train. When they start giving the feedback is, I really like that session, then I know that they're that kind of a responder. And that could be 10 sets of three. They go, that was the best workout I've ever done. So, <laughs> alrighty, you're, you're, you know, you're an intensity responder. Yeah. And, and then there's others, and you do 10 sets of 10 or whatever, but it's a 400 rep workout. It's like, that's, I feel like I, I'm working. And they just love it. They thrive it. They don't want to rest. They want to keep going, right? You're, and I've got a number of clients. And then there's other clients who want a different workout every time they train. They are variety responder. But is there a bit of a balance between variety and like just giving them something different every time? Yeah. That, well, ideally, you shouldn't. Un- yeah. Unless that's something that a client really thrives on. Because then they work harder. They can do more work. Mm. And you don't make them completely different you're working on it so for the variety of responders who i have it's not a completely different workout every time they're they're different themes or ways of doing things within the same uh broad heading of i'm working on shoulders and obliques and glutes and i'll hit them from slightly different angles Mm. but to them it's enough of a difference that it's a one-leg romanian deadlift and it's a one-leg cable and then it's one like good morning and then and you're cycling through the good exercises based on that pattern but that's enough for them to buy into it and perform it better because mm. that's everything yeah so as a trainer you can kind of look back and you can see okay it's horizontal push or horizontal pull and all that but yeah. as a client you're just oh getting all these new exercises it's to- so fun totally so i've got a plan yeah <laughs> they don't know the plan but <laughs> yeah. they, they don't they they're thriving that there's variety and difference mm. I'm, I've already worked out that they're going to do this, this, and this, and I'm working towards something. Mm. 
But because they buy into it, they, they lift so much better. Their results are so much better compared to a traditional, say, month program where I'm progressively overloading it each week. Mm. The majority do thrive on that, mm. but not everyone does. Yeah. Now, to answer the larger question, how do you approach training or the preparation? Mm. And these are principles that I wish that I invented, but I didn't. I just learned them from every coach who is a good coach because you can't be game, match, physique all year round. You, you can't be at peak all year round. Which is a struggle when you, like, when you chuck in social media where people are looking shredded all year round. Of course, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. And this is the difference between smoke and mirrors and the actual reality. Yeah, You just can't be there. And mm. otherwise, they would hold the Olympic Games and championships Every week, Every week because, yeah. you know what? Yeah, so you just peak all year, and it doesn't happen. And mm. and this still for athletes that I work with, they still get post-competition blues. Mm. And you explain it to them: we're going to peak you. You are now in the pre-competitive phase, and then you're going to peak, and then you're going to have some time off, mm. and let your body go. Yeah, because it's got to. You can't push the accelerator like this all the time. And if you haven't come from a dedicated sport where you've gone through years and years and years you won't understand that and you often are hit psychologically badly with it mm. and so i view the year in different phases but everyone always starts with the preparation phase yeah. and the preparation phase is twofold for me and that is to build work capacity so they can train whatever their goal is better because the fitter you are and the more general strength and the more balanced you are you can do more work and we're in a world of in the fitness industry that rewards typically doing more work mm. because if you can do more volume and more intensity and and train more frequently then you will generally be get a better result yeah and the other is to fix weak links and this is because everyone has imbalances and the imbalances can be between front and back muscles, say quad and hamstring. They can be left to right limbs, which is really common and yeah. they can be between your prime movers and your stabilizers. And the preparation phase allows me that chance to prioritize those areas that I'm just not doing in a fat loss phase or a hypertrophy phase or strength phase. You just don't have the luxury. You, you have to improve strength or do high energy expending training. You don't have time to go and work on ankle stabilizers and your rotator cuff and your grip, but you do that in a GPP. Now, it's not basic, but it's just, you just, pri you just do it. A lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions that it's the basic training a beginner does. Well, not really. Only a beginner does beginner training. Yeah. So where would, so where would your advice lie for people just starting out with training? Like, I, I guess in some way, shape or form, kind of doing their own client prep. Like, where would you, like, what would you say to someone who's just starting? Hmm. Identify what you hate doing and what you suck at. Because you have to become good at it because it will catch you later. Mm. That's the primary rule of thumb. And that's what a trainer is meant to do, is to identify, well, you've, you've done a lot of glute work, but you've done no lower ab work. Mm. And you've done no AD ductor work, all abduction work for your outside glutes. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to not do that, but you have to do a Copenhagen AD duction. You have to do some reverse leg curls, uh, reverse abdominal curls and maybe some scap and you know, something like that to, to balance you up. Yeah. So like, do you think that that's hard to do? Cause obviously like I'm on social media, there's a lot of people out there posting on social media and they're doing like just a glute workout. So then people go to the gym and they go, oh, I'll just do this glute workout. Yeah. And then they'll find someone else's yeah. glute workout and just keep doing that. Yeah. How do people uh, uh, like navigate through that? Yeah. I was listening to a friend talking recently, it must've been last week. And she said, well, I just find a workout online and I just do that. Yeah. Is that bad? <laughs> now, I've got two answers. The, the number one answer is, no, of course not, because it's exercise. It's and, better than and, nothing. And it's better than nothing, and you're doing something, and hopefully it's been designed by somebody who knows what they're doing, so at least it's got a degree of balance. That may mm. or may not be true, but yeah. we can be charitable at this stage. Um, now, then the, the professional answer is, is that the best we can do? And will that result in imbalances down the track. Mm. It's the same as if I say, bro, I, I want you to take up swimming, just freestyle. Mm. And we're, all we're gonna do is freestyle. And we're gonna start at 10 minutes, and we're gonna build it, and that's all you get. So then in six months time, you're saying, well, my swimming's really improved, but I've got this shoulder ache. 
Why is that? Well, because you've done a million internal rotations and no external rotations. Mm. So it's not Nobel Prize winning stuff to realize you've got to do some backstroke. Mm. Or you've got to get to the gym and do some external rotations and work on what the sport doesn't do. That makes sense. Everyone understands that. Mm. But what about in our industry, which is physique driven, and that is it's rewarded by glute, core, shoulders, females, Mm. and say pecs and quads for guys. Work on that. But equal and opposite, work on the opposing muscles that the movement patterns that you love doing, Mm. work on their equal and opposite. You have to train them. Otherwise, Mm. you will get lumbar problems because your tilt will be so aggressive in in the hips Mm. and your shoulders will be... I mean, we all see what happens when a guy just does bench and no back. Yeah. Right. But it's the same for every... If you're doing abduction and not AD, you're going to have problems. They just don't show up in six months. They show up in time. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah, and, and that's one thing I took away massively from your course, um, especially going through the general prep where I think I probably will stuff up the numbers, but the the dumbbell chest press had to be the same as the single arm dumbbell row, I think, in terms of proportion. Yeah. And my pull was not very good. Yeah. Like I could bench pretty good dumbbells and then I'd try and row and it was like pretty average. And then I'd try and do the shoulders. And I think they were meant to be 66% of what I could do. Um, I'm and, and correct me if I'm wrong with the numbers, um, and I, I couldn't get that either. And then where I really screwed up was the external rotators with the, like the, I think that was 15% of your chest. And I, I was like absolutely out of balance that way. And I didn't get injured, but I think, you know, like maybe I caught it early and that's where I, yeah, well, as a PT, even growing up, like I said, you, you don't come in the most educated. They just kind of want you through the door. So I was just, yeah, kind of like doing mirror muscles and I was lucky to not get injured. But one thing I did kind of injure myself on was my lower back when I was squatting. And I, and I remember at your course, we were kind of looking and I would tilt sometimes at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I still focus on to work on to try and stay upright. But it was because of unbalance. I had to do a lot of single leg work for a while. Yeah. And I think one major thing that I see now, a lot of people jumping into squatting, jumping into deadlift straight away, mm-hmm. even though they haven't qualified mm-hmm. themselves to do it. Yeah. How would you judge people to say, okay, you can squat or you can deadlift? Because people think yeah. you have to squat and you yeah. have to deadlift yeah. to get big legs or to get big glutes or to yeah. get whatever they want. That's what they strive for. How can they kind of qualify themselves? Yeah, this comes back to the evidence-based principles we're talking about at the beginning. There's a lot of very strong opinions in the fitness industry. Mm. And, and some of them, they're just not... The person giving them, frankly, and it sounds terrible, they shouldn't really have an opinion. They don't know enough about it to give an opinion. And you see this, well, you should only squat or only deadlift. Like, really? That's not how muscle works, mm. right? So if you, if you take a muscle and you do single leg deadlifts and you work to failure or very close to it and you match the volume based with double leg deadlifts, you look at it under, you take a sample of muscle, you look at it, you're not going to say, oh, well, this is the deadlift muscle. We can tell, <laughs> right? You, you do, you're working deadlifts. The muscle doesn't know. It just knows effort and fiber recruitment. Mm. So whether you're recruiting that fiber with one leg or with two legs, the muscle doesn't care. It just wants muscle fiber recruitment or high levels of recruitment. And so to answer your question of, uh, I, I use Mark McKay, he's a strength coach from Queensland, a very famous strength coach. He would say, you've got to earn the right to progress. And I, before I was a trainer, I was a guitarist. And I I've wanted seen to, that. Sorry yeah, to jump in. Yeah. I've seen that on Instagram. Yeah. I saw you kind yeah. of busting that out. Yeah. I was in COVID lockdown. So I was like, <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm going to pull out the guitar. And then I felt really bad. So then I wasn't even looking at my phone for a few days. But so when I pick, picked up the guitar, I wanted to play everything. And I would look up to these people who could shred. It's like, I'm going to shred. It's like, I don't even know where my B string is and how to... So you've got to learn this. And anyone who's played a uh, musical instrument understands that you've got to learn to read music and your notes and your technique and your picking and da-da-da-da, and then you can play Jimi Hendrix. In the gym, it's like, stop that. I'm just going to learn how to do a snatch group deadlift standing on a podium with bands. Okay, well, let's, let's deconstruct it. So to do that means you can do a snatch group deadlift. To do that means that you can do a deadlift. To do that, you can do a Romanian deadlift. Back extension, good morning, hip extension. So in my programs, or what, what I'll teach any trainer is foundational movement patterns that teach a client to move through their hip, but create rigidity at their trunk so they're not 
moving their trunk when you don't want them to move it. Mm. And then, then I can load that. But then I need to make sure that left and right are balanced, which is what you alluded to. So there are ratios that if you can squat X, then your Bulgarian squat should be Y or your front step up should be W. You know, mm. what, and there's ratios, but the ratios are kind of, oh, they're helpful, they're guides to know whether you're ballpark or way off. But most importantly, they show left or right. And that's the issue. Because if you can do a weight you should do for 10 with your right leg, but you can do six with your left, well, why are you loading a barbell when you're doing a squat? Because you've got one leg that's 40% stronger. It will do all the work and you'll see a shift and your lumbar disc will be calling out for mercy. <laughs> yeah, well that's, so I actually, I was training late at night. I was still a PT at the time at Market Street and I trained and I just rushed it. And I think I was just tired and exhausted or whatever. And I, yeah, I went down to a squat and I couldn't get back up. And I had like, it wasn't too heavy, but it was 120 kg on my back, which isn't very easy to do when you kind of slip something. And yeah. I, I couldn't walk the next day. Yeah. I was like really bad. Yeah. I had like an ambulance yeah. come in and Is like, it was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. But that was like a, from then I kind of had to go back through the client prep stuff that you worked and, and me being the client, being like slowly working yeah. through yeah. to kind of work work my way up back into you know not that squat and deadlift once again are necessary but to kind of work my way back up into it and i stayed away from squatting and deadlifting a while for a while because i was a little bit fearful more so it was a mentality thing now i'm back into it i kind of have confidence working into it um to kind of go on another direction i know that you've coached some pretty great athletes you've um you've coached hattie boydell you've coached and recently i saw anna Crichton. is that how you say her name take the um, WBFF pro um, title. What's it like coaching them? Because I know a lot of, especially female athletes kind of, and even some, some, some men as well, but I think a lot of female, females just in the gym in general kind of look at competing and put it on a mm -hmm. pedestal. And it is a great achievement. And, but I, I think people don't really understand the amount of work it takes and the amount of like grit that these people have, because I know, because I've seen it. But from the outside looking in, you know, a lot of people have this goal, I want to compete one day, as if it's like something you just tick off the list, but it's, it's actually a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And the, the idea that I just want to tick it off and I want to do it for me, uh, you can do that. I mean, don't, if that's something that floats your boat and that's yeah. something that you would like to do, then I would encourage you to go after your goals. Yeah. But at the higher levels of performance, and this is unique. I've worked with, um, at the highest level of sport in over 30 different sports, but the uniqueness of that personality, it's, it's all the same personality. It's a single-minded devotion to the task. And sometimes the athlete is very good at also having a normal personality, not, not just them focused. And other athletes are not. The, everyone exists for those individuals. And they might look really nice, but one person exists and that's the athlete. And, and, and they're not very fun people to work with. Mm -hmm. But the strength coach is the bottom of the pecking order. That's why I never talk about athletes because well, you know, all I did was told them the sets and the reps, right? <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the 30 or 40 hours a week that they're training, they might be doing strength work two or three hours. That's a really small deal. So when you hear strength coaches talking about all the athletes they've trained, it's like, come on, man, it's the athlete. We're the bottom of the barrel of the support staff, really. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to not talk names, but that single-minded devotion to perfection and being the best is a common theme that goes across all the athletes, across all the sports mm. that I've worked with. And how have you dealt with the other side of, like you said, post-competition blues? Because I've seen online like people they're gearing their, and especially people with followings, they're kind of gearing their followers up like, oh, I'm so pumped, I'm two weeks out, I'm one week out, and then they don't place. Yeah. Like how have but you- But there can only be one winner. Right? Yeah, but it's- <laughs> you know, yeah. this, is, this, is, this is it, because you pour That's your heart and soul. And some sports are very clear cut, as in you were the fastest athlete. Mm. You lifted the most weight. Others have a team of people judging you. And gymnastics is a sport like this, mm. but physique competitions are like this, which means that, and, and my experience, Hattie and I have talked about this, is that 
she won the world championships one year mm. and then the next year she came second and they said you need to come in in a different condition so we did that we did everything that they said and she still came in second so mm. well what what did you want now you're saying she's too small so which one is it that you want and this is the unfortunate subjective side to visual based aesthetic based sports mm. yeah and that's the I guess that's one thing why I haven't really dived into like, well, people have asked me in the past, like, you know, would you ever compete? Because that's kind of, you know, oh, you're a personal trainer. You just compete. <laughs> and then you get all these lean photos and you post it yeah. and then you get clients. I never kind of went that way. And I think subconsciously looking back at it now, and especially after starting jujitsu now, which is a, I guess you could say a performance based sport where you don't just win by being in a certain condition, but you win by, I guess, being the better athlete, through a performance. Um, I think that's one reason why I kind of stared away from it because, well, especially when you mix in the, like the question if someone's natural or not, and then you're like, if I was going to stand on stage, haven't touched anything. And then someone's, you know, (laughs) taken something and then they're better than me. And and I've trained my ass off for 20 weeks. And I I believe I do have pretty good genetics. You know, I'm Maori. My dad's helped me out with the Maori genetics that helps building muscle, I think. But then like, you know, someone that's on the, on the source, I like to say, like, I'm just not gonna, and I didn't want to put myself through that roller coaster because it's like, well, how do you judge that? Yeah, this this is a, it's an issue, and mm. it's the unfortunate level of high level sport is that doping is a reality, and it's very very hard to detect mm. cheating. That's how it is. But in physique sports, testing isn't really. You know, big deal, mm. if done at all. Yeah, yeah. So, at the very highest levels in certain federations, it's just assumed that if you are competitive, you are um, doping. Yeah. And that's you need to make that decision whether do you want to do that and compete like that, but don't go around and saying that you're completely <laughs> clean, right? Yeah. It's like, oh. well, any coach can work that out pretty quick. Yeah. That's one thing I, I hate. Like I've seen some interviews where they're on like live TV and I actually met this guy in real life and I won't n- name him, but like a big fitness dude. Um, I was in, um, I actually flew over to America with my friend and I had a high net worth client. I flew over to America to, to, to train him for a certain extended period of time. And we went to Gold's Gym and the famous fitness model guy was there. And I was like, you know, like I think, and this was a couple of years ago, but I thought I was like in pretty good shape for 10 years of, or 12 years of natural training. And he just made me look like a stick. Like I just looked like, I felt like I didn't even train, you know, beside him. And he's like, you know, he was on this interview saying, oh yeah, I'm just natural train, it's trained hard. And I'm like, well, I believe he's trained hard for sure. I would not put that against him, but he's like, oh, I don't know, just made me look like an absolute stick. Like that's one thing like that I can't, get behind like saying like I think that's you know like lying to get clients that's all I see it's like because because the only other reason you would do it well the only reason you would do it would be to financially benefit right yeah but it can also just support a whole body dysmorphia image that Mm. you feel that you have to have that to look a certain way and feel a certain way there's a lot of psychology in it but yes when your body is your business and you generate business it's the issue of course it it's illegal, which means that people are going to lie about it. That's the nature of it. I think as long as most people realize that a lot of what is seen on social media has been pharmaceutically enhanced. Mm. And the problem with that is if you're an 18-year-old kid and you, you want a good physique and you look up to somebody and, and you think you can do it naturally, well, you can't. Yeah. Because there's a limit, there's a ceiling to what the human body can do. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest problem is people will look at person X and say, I want to look like him. They yeah. start training, yeah. get fed up. You know, I was in that in that boat once. I would read all the articles, look at their interviews, look at their photos, eat their meal plans, yeah. which tasted terrible, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. do their programs, which Absolutely. took about two and a half hours, yeah. and I'd still get nowhere. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to talk about hypertrophy a little bit because I know you're, well, for me coming up once again as a personal trainer, you were person that just opened my eyes to what I actually took to build muscle can you kind of break down I guess just the process of building muscle what it takes 
and then maybe just maybe the biggest thing people get wrong with building muscle because I think one thing people think and I've experienced a lot with clients signing up saying yeah I want to put on 10 kg of muscle and I'm like you know like are we signing up for six years or what's going on like it's 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 much harder to gain than to lose like to gain muscle than to lose body fat but some people just kind of compare it like oh I'd like to just lose 5 kg of muscle I mean lose 5 kg of body fat and put on 3 kg of muscle but it doesn't really work like that it doesn't work like that and it doesn't work like that when you consider it in the lens of evolution having more of you was not of evolutionary benefit but having endurance was Mm. So the adaptations that we get in our bodies to improve endurance capacity, they're driven by obviously doing that task, walking, jogging, but also in the absence of food. So interestingly, by being on low energy and even low carbohydrate, you get more out of that training session. So the body evolutionary is designed to ramp up those pathways to make you a better hunter. Mm. or a gatherer but growing new muscle is energy expensive (laughs) so there's a lot of things that have to go into the stew so to speak of growing muscle but Mm. to become a better runner you don't need to focus much about nutrition because it's even happening when you train before breakfast and you don't even eat and you skip all of those things help you become a better runner Mm. but weight training they they're it's so easy to lose muscle and if you have COVID or you have a flu you're going to lose muscle mass with your bed rest because muscles are in a constant state of build up and build down. We're turning over basically a percent of our muscle every few days. So within a few months, you've got a completely new muscular system, but it's driven by what is the overall stimulus. And if Mm. the overall stimulus is you take up running because you want to do a marathon, then the turnover of muscle is geared towards taking in blood and mitochondria. But if you're doing weight training, then that turning over the stimulus is now, I'm gonna grow muscle. Now that process is really slow because every time we eat a meal and it's got protein in it, and you've been lifting weights, we take less than 10% of that meal or about two grams and turn that into muscle per, per meal. It's a very slow, very small process. And when you do gain weight and you look at the scales, go, oh, I've gone up a kilo this week. You didn't get a kilo of muscle. <laughs> <laughs> We wish. You get a few grams of muscle and the rest is, is water and glycogen. Mm. So it's a very long process. So, so where do you think would be the number one thing that people kind of screw up with trying to build muscle? Like in the weight room? Yeah, say. yeah. Because I would say there's two big issues when people fail to grow muscle. Mm. And one is inappropriate programming variables because mm. there is unknown amount of volume and intensity and rest all of these things that have been studied and compared against something else and shown that this is a better way Mm. and the other is just not eating enough because it's energetically expensive to lay down new you so if you're under eating and let's say you have a wearable you've got an aura ring and it says you move around at work and you went for a walk and you lifted weights and it says your aura ring you do 3,000 calories well, that means in three meals, you need to eat 1,000 calories each to be in balance. Just to balance Just to balance. Yeah. Not even before the surplus energy that the brain says, well, let's take that surplus and send it to the skeletal muscle to grow. Mm. But if you're an energy deficit, you, you can grow muscle, but you need to be very fastidious. Mm. But the body is primed to grow muscle in energy balance or surplus. So firstly, you need to understand what are you burning every day? And if you've got no idea then you're just guessing, right? Why bother talking about macros or protein? Like That doesn't mean anything. You have to understand that if you're expending 3,000 calories, then you should probably eat 3,300, maybe shoot 10% above it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that I've found just people absolutely stuff up is the the pyramid of nutritional importance or like the whole calories in thing. Like people are focusing a question that, not infuriates me, but that that I dislike getting is like what protein powder should I take? Or yeah. you know, how much creatine should I take per yeah. day? Lower order questions. <laughs> Get, find out how much you expend in a day. Mm. Do it over a week and you'll find that there's quite marked changes. If you mm. have a leg day or a rest day, you could be at 2,100 calories and then on a leg day you could be at three and a half thousand. Mm. 
once you understand your total energy needs for the day, then you need to shoot just above it. Mm. That's the point of now being in surplus. Now the weight training stimulus, that's telling that surplus energy to go to skeletal muscle. Mm. If you're in energy deficit, you're in preservation mode. Why, why would you grow new tissue mm. by and large when you're in energy deficit? Now, again, you can, but it's not optimized. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, say like, you know, there's that study, I think it's on rugby players, where it's like the calorie deficit, they still build muscle. Yeah, it's very, and, yeah. But it, it's, it, it's just super rare, or, or you have to have really great You need to know what or, you're doing. So the best, this is called recomping, the best recomping study that was precisely controlled was done by Stu Phillips. Mm. And I spoke to Stu via email afterwards, and he said, you know, the guys were walking around just saying, feed me, <laughs> feed me. <laughs> <laughs> and he induced a massive deficit and train them an hour vigorously six days a week. It's possible. In fact, every girl I've worked with for physique competitions, they, mm. they've all recomped from coming into dieting phase to just before competition. Mm. Very, very possible. You just really need to know what you're doing. So most people don't, to be honest. They well, just they don't know what to do. Yeah, and, and, and I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, well, you'll be on lower calories, so you'll probably feel pretty crap. But then you have to train mm. like a beast, mm-hmm. like you're like you've had like you've got the most energy you have throughout the day. Like that's a really I don't think people have the kind of yeah. grit to do that. Yeah, and that takes you back to the, what, what's the psychology of an athlete? It's mm. single-minded focus towards their task, and that that grit just to train when you don't feel like training, mm. and when it's cold and raining and dark, and you've been doing the same thing over and over and over. If that doesn't float your boat, then find something else to do. But that's mm. what it takes. Uh, I want to jump to a couple of questions that people sent through. I'll just be aware of time. Um, How do you know when to bulk and when to cut? So some followers have kind of sent these in through Instagram. So how would you know when to bulk and when to cut? Excluding a competition. Yeah. So So just in life. Just kind of, you know, uh, when should I get leaner? When should I decide to put on bulk it's a really personal answer and that is when do you want to look good in the least amount of clothes so for for the vast majority of people that is going to be december until march or april Mm. so that's great that means that at least 12 to 16 weeks before december you now need to think about entering a phase of training which is calorie restricted Mm higher volume focus with training and a real emphasis on dietary protein Mm. because in energy deficit your body will break down muscle tissue the body doesn't really care what it's breaking down as long as it's breaking down something in that in that shortfall of energy Mm. that's why studies have shown 30 40 and sometimes close to 50 percent of the loss of weight can come from muscle tissue so if you can take up running because you want to shred (laughs) <laughs> so you're running in energy deficit, then that's an, a, a catabolic stimulus. Mm. So you will lose muscle tissue. So you won't look the way that you want to look. Yeah. So that's why weight training becomes so critically important mm. in that cutting phase. So that's you work your way backwards, which means then from, let's call it April, until that 16 weeks, you just devote yourself to being in balance or slight surplus, mm. and you build as much tissue as your genetic frame will allow you to build. And what advice would you give to people that struggle with gaining weight because that's a big one people are people want to transform their body or build muscle mass but they they can't hack their genes getting tighter or actually having to put on a little bit of weight because i like i do it but i do it very subtly like i do it in small increments yeah where i'm okay i don't look as lean as i have before but it's not super obvious like whoa brock's let himself go but some people struggle with that tightrope walk of being lean or Oh, I'm fat. Like I'm just going to eat whatever yeah. I can now. Then stay in balance. So decide, d- determine what it takes to be in energy balance, and use a wearable. And okay, they're, they're not perfect. Everyone knows they're not perfect. Yeah, I got a Fitbit. Yeah, since, yeah, yeah. And it's going to be a ballpark, right? Mm. It's not seven thousand calories, and it's not fifteen hundred calories. It'll be a ballpark for you, mm. and that ballpark will be relatively consistent. So eat around that. Just a little bit above if you want a muscle focus or just stay around there. Then you can at least get the most out of your training. Mm. But if you're consistently sitting under that by 300, 500 calories, you skip a meal, you're busy, you'll never get the physique that you want. Mm. 
but that's the struggle like because people just want to look lean 24 7 yeah and stack on muscle at the same yeah, time well, yeah well this is it can't happen it can't happen long term mm. the studies that show recomp we're talking about studies that are four weeks to eight weeks yeah they're not talking about a, a 12 month study where you sat at six kilograms of body fat all year round mm. you have to do a prodigious amount of work to do that mm. it's it's possible <laughs> but do you have work do you have family do you have other people in your life do you like food mm. you can't do all of those things mm. and still have six kilograms of body fat yeah and that's a problem you see with people like say like i'll say such as myself like i think i have fortunate genetics i can eat quite a lot of food like so my average maintenance will be if i get somewhere between 10 to fifteen thousand steps i do my couple jujitsu things i i train five to six times a week I can eat about 3,500 and just maintain. If I want to lose weight, I can go down to 3,200 or something like that, and I'll still drop weight nice and slowly. Yeah. And I, I'm still I'm still eating. Like on Sunday, I had three grilled burgers for lunch. Right, that's, I don't know, 1,500 calories just in one meal. And you kind of see, say, I'll pop, I might pop up on social media, and I'm eating this and that, and you see, whoa, these guys are like lean all the time, but they're eating all this like, I think people don't really understand the importance of genetics. I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. it's hard. F like, yeah. it's like at the same time that I'm giving advice to people about fat loss and stuff like that. I've I'm often on the other side of the spectrum where I was a hard gainer growing up. I was always skinny. I was mm. just like a bottomless pit. My mum mm. would be like, "Do you have worms inside you?" Like, I'll just keep eating, and I would just kind of like never gain weight. But everyone's so different in that way. Rule number one. You just cannot compare yourself yeah. to anyone else. You don't have the same microbiome. You don't have the same psychology. You don't have mm. the same insulin sensitivity, digestive enzymes, food history, what your ancestors... Got none of that. Mm. So you compare yourself to you and you've got to find the solutions of what works for you. Yeah. And, and some people really are very genetically blessed with insulin sensitivity. Other people just do a prodigious amount of work. Yeah. Uh, you can take, say, um, somebody on social media. Take Ross Edgley, who is an adventure. He's, a, he's an absolute beast. He's a beast. And and he can put away the food. And he shows pictures of his food. <laughs> I've seen Like him, ridiculous yeah. amounts of food. <laughs> but he also can swim 25 kilometers in five hours, right? Like, who's doing that in this fair time? Uh, and, that's, and then I'm going to go and, fr and do some heel sprints. And then yeah. I'm going to lift some weight. So yeah. you're daily energy expenditure is 9,000 calories. Mm. So you can eat 8,000 calories and be in massive energy deficit mm. and look like that. Yeah, or the, yeah, you're like comparing yourself where, let's say you're an office worker, you sit down from nine yeah. to five and then you go home, yeah. you sit down, watch more TV. Yeah. And then there's a fitness person on Instagram, say like Ross, who's kind of like, well, you could say like full-time job is to be an athlete and, it is, and yeah. to do things. Like you yeah. can't compare yourself to yeah. someone that's literally getting paid to be an athlete and yeah. paid to work out where you're like, can't be bothered working out. Yeah. It's just like chalk and cheese. Absolutely. But don't forget that also those people who gravitate to sports and physiques, that's what drives them. That's mm. working at a desk in front of a computer all day doing banking. That's not what drives them. They they thrive on going to the gym and, and counting their macros. Mm. <laughs> so I have a couple more questions. Um, oh, this is a good one. Tips for a brand new PT. As in, this is the first gym I'm working at. I'm working at, and I'm brand new. Great. Personal training is an amazing job, and you can meet so many different people and help all different types. Mm. And personal trainers are like the GPs of the fitness industry. <laughs> we need to be. We, we need to have a working knowledge of everything. Yeah. But you don't have to specialize. But you need to understand about nutrition and how to help rehab a knee and what to avoid hurt someone's back and how to help somebody lose weight and put them it's, it's every everything it's that's really like a gp so the more courses that are diverse that you can do the better and click with personalities you you'll, you'll find educators who you you see the world the same way they do because there's mm -hmm. so many great courses out there and there's so many books so i, I always advise read as widely as you can take some time out of social media and actually read a proper book, <laughs> right? People are like, I'm doing some research there, there yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. I'm researching. <laughs> I saw a great picture of 
somebody's sitting on the toilet and you see the pants around the ankle and, it's, and the meme is, I'm doing my research. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so read as much as you can and attend as many different courses across the different fields. So mm. do courses with physios and sports dietitians mm. and strength coaches and coaches who do different sports to what you do. You'll, you'll pick stuff up mm. and don't get overwhelmed because there's a lot to become good at and it takes a long time. Mm. I think one thing that, that I really liked when I watched you, because I remember when I came to do your course on the lunch break, you had a client. And right. um, they were they were hell days. Yeah, you were like, oh yeah, guys, I'm just going to teach, and now I'm going to do a client for an hour while you guys get lunch, and then yeah. you're back into it. Yeah. Um, and you were so quiet. You know, like in fitness first, you get the <laughs> one, two. You know, counting every rep and how's your weekend? How's this? How's that? And you know, and always counting. How's that? Is that all good? And then I saw you because, you know, like it's it, it was just normal to me. You know, you just see. At Fitness First, I think, well, I, I shouldn't just single out Fitness First, but I think the standard of personal training could could really improve. And I think that's why I loved your course, because especially the trainers at my gym that did it, they were the busy trainers, because we kind of picked up an idea of what could be improved or how we could be better trainers. But yeah, you were so quiet. Yeah. Not I, quiet I, in I, the... I, I'm, so, a quiet, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an introvert by nature, mm. and... I don't feel that clients need fake pumping up, right? <laughs> so, and, and ultimately, you, your client picks the trainer based on a personality agreement. So my personality is, I'm not going to talk if I don't need to talk. Mm. And I really don't think you're interested in my life, despite <laughs> what you might pretend to be. But I know you're not listening to me. So uh, I'm there because you want my brains, to, to be honest, and my eyes. So I'm mm. there to see, watch... And if I don't need to say anything, I won't. Mm. So it's all pretty uh, self-awareness. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's kind of half the chat you hear on the gym floor is weekends and. I think trainers need to realise that their clients don't care. <laughs> I mean, they're polite. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But they're they're not listening. <laughs> like, why would they care about a twenty-two-year-old yeah. what they did? In the, you know, they they yeah. don't. They're being polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. So we need to get out of our own way mm. pretty quickly. I like that. Um, another question actually I, I find this one quite interesting it was a question directed at you or I do you nap during the day sometimes and do you recommend it when I'm at work I do not because I don't have time but I love a good nap sometimes sometimes the knowledge of having a nap is the only thing that gets me out of bed in the morning mm. I just love it and Data shows improved cognition with it, so you get a better rest of your day. Mm. But if clients feel obliged that they have to have a nap, it could be a sign of something else, and that's worth exploring. And I'll look at two avenues. One, are you getting a rebound hypoglycemia? So you'll have a meal, and you'll get a really large surge in insulin and glucose, and then it will drop below to where it was before the meal and you just feel like you've got to have a nap. So mm. if that's within 30 minutes to an hour of having a meal, it's like, oh, really, I'm tired. Mm. You might have rebound hypoglycemia that's worth talking about with your GP. And is that from calories? Because I know there's the postprandial kind of yeah. effect. Is that just from calories or is that from carbohydrates it, as well? You have to work out which is which. So okay. if, if you just are eating a large amount and you're, and you're having 1,500 calories yeah. and all of that food is in your stomach and the blood is being shunted away elsewhere and it's now going to digestion yeah you're probably going to feel pretty sleepy but i mean how many people are putting away 1500 calories at lunch yeah well actually it's funny to say that because i used to feel really sleepy after breakfast okay and i used to sink a huge amount of calories because i was yeah. starving when i yeah. woke up yeah and because i have such a big calorie budget i'll be yeah. like well I've got, I've got to put away quite a lot of food yeah especially if i have a high activity day so i'd like have this big yogurt bowl and sometimes i'll throw chocolate in there and honey and mm -hmm. peanut butter just to make up my calories and then I'll be like, man, I want to sleep. And it's, yeah, it's like yeah. 9 a.m. Well, that, that, that's only been that, awake that's a classic postprandial torpor. So yeah. the, the other is if, if, if you're just having a normal size, you have some oats for breakfast and, mm. and I don't know, some sourdough. And then an hour later, it's like, I really, I really need to nap. Well, have a chat to your GP because you could be rebound. Mm. The other is that your sleep architecture might not be great. So you're either waking up mid-REM cycle and you're not getting enough REM sleep. 
because remember, you have deep sleep and you've got REM sleep and, and, and you've got phases of sleep, the different brainwave activities. Most of your sleep in the early hours of when you go to bed is deep, restoring your body. The latter hours is REM. So if you wake up too early, you haven't missed an hour of sleep. You've, you've lopped off 50% of your REM sleep mm. because you're doing all of your dreaming sleep at that stage. And depending on your sleep architecture your, or your sleep duration, you might not be having enough or great architecture. So in the day, you just have to sleep. Every athlete sleeps, right? Mm. Quote, unquote, every athlete. Virtually every athlete has that luxury of training in the morning and having a nap and... And then, but for the rest of us who work, it's a bit of a luxury. But do ask yourself: Is it just a rebound issue from food, mm. or does your sleep hygiene need some focus to make sure that you can push through? But there's nothing inherently wrong with a nap. Yeah, limit it to twenty minutes. Right. Is there certain types of people that like to nap more, or like, because because I'm kind of concerned sometimes because I used to nap. Uh, especially when I was really busy as a mm. personal trainer, if someone cancelled yeah. or yeah. If, if, yeah. if if there was a 30-minute yeah. spot, I'd, yeah. I'd run to the car park, yeah. put the seat back, yeah. cover my eyes, yeah. sleep back in, yeah. and like I would do that. But like I think it was just because of pure exhaustion. But Pure exhaustion, yeah. If you're not sleeping, in that case, nine hours a night, then <laughs> oh, you're going to need, need a nap. No, I was going like five or six. Yeah, well, it, that's a yeah. sleep hygiene issue, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so your sign can be that you, you're not getting enough sleep or enough sleep quality. And then mm. don't sleep too late in the day mm. because sleeping, having a nap takes the pressure, sleep the valve pressure. off. Yeah. And you've got to be careful. So three o'clock, that's it. You can't, can't sleep after that. Really? So you've got to, got to nap before that. And, and well, I asked you if you wanted a coffee on the way here and you that's said right. you don't do caffeine after 8 a.m. Yeah. Is yeah. that something you do to, to protect your sleep Absolutely. or is that something else? Yeah, you, you've got to fight for your sleep. There yeah. is no question that everything and everyone encroaches on your sleep. It's your partner, your kids, work, emails, entertainment, all of those things will try and take you away from an eight or nine hour sleep opportunity. If you are training with regularity and focus and discipline, you will need nine hours of sleep a night, or at least very close to it, because mm. you need that to restore your body. But let's call it eight hours. You need an eight-hour sleep opportunity and maybe a bit more if you're training heavily. Mm. How many things will try and get away of that? Eating out at night, watching a movie, binge-watching, catching up with your wife. I mean, these are all things that yeah. increase. So you have to fight for it. Mm. And caffeine is a sleep destroyer. So it has a six-hour half-life, which means that quarter of your coffee that you had at eight o'clock in the morning is circulating in your brain when you're going to bed at eight. I wake up at four, so I'm a better date. Mm. But it's terrible for social life. But <laughs> well, I, you just I turn get to me work, down. Right? You just turn <laughs> me down for a coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so coffee. So I, f- my rule of thumb is it's twelve hours mm. for for concentrate. I'll have a tea maybe a bit after that, but right. the, you know, there's thirty or forty milligrams in a tea, but there's one hundred and twenty in coffee. So so do you with tea? Do you dodge a green tea because it's higher in caffeine? Go for something else or do you not uh, really think I'm about tea? I'm a really... I like English breakfast. So, um, okay. you know, it's pretty simple. Yeah. And is, is, is there anything else that you do to protect your sleep? Yeah, I wear blue blockers. and At I, what time? Uh, trying to mimic dusk. So yeah. at this time of year, it's pretty easy. I put them on from five o'clock. Yeah. Um, I'll avoid doing any sort of work within an hour before bed, so I will not turn my computer on. Yeah. I won't even check my emails. Yeah. And... Bed is for sleeping in intimacy, so I won't sit up in bed and do work. Yeah, I used to do that a lot. I've stopped that now. It's a mistake. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a mistake that a lot of people just don't. You are creating an association with mm. you, whether you think that you mm. are or not. You are. So yeah. bed is, it's for sleeping. Yeah, I think that's one thing. So we moved to Mossman to have a bit of a better place and also to get our own property. But the place that we lived at before was so small. So the bed was there and the desk was right beside it. So I was literally mm-hmm. like, I kind of had no other choice because the house, the, like the place was literally so small. There was like the lounge and all of that. And then there was the bed and then there was a desk. And yeah. then like, that's where it was. So it was really easy for me to grab my laptop yeah. when I was sick of yeah. lying yeah. You know, or sitting at my desk. I just yeah. go lie on my bed and like, yeah. like that. But yeah. I think, yeah, subconsciously it's like, well, that's one thing I took away from your course was like your body remembers what it does where it, like yeah. you know where it is so if you're in the bed and you're working and you're tr- and, then, and then you try and go to sleep there yeah. it's like well this place is for working oh 100 percent. and for those people who do live in smaller places you just need to fastidiously set the place up that's designed for different activities so mm. your bed once you get up in the morning you make it 
and it, when you look at it, you go, that's my place that I'm sleeping and it's perfectly made and it's beautiful. Mm. But then on my desk, my desk is clear. And you, if it's like what you had, you have a division and that division is you've got your workspace and then you might have some books or some pictures and then that separates that workspace mm. where you do all your working and then you've got your bed. Yeah, I wish I had... Well, it was, it was man, it was like 38 meters squared or something. <laughs> it was a pretty tight fix. Yeah, we have to do what we have to do, right? Yeah. Um, last question I want to end on, and this isn't from anyone, it's, it's from me. Um, this is the Better With Brock podcast, right? And it's mainly, yes, it's around fitness, nutrition, lifestyle. I'm a personal trainer. That's pretty obvious. But I'm also very interested in self-development. And I read a lot of self-development books. And just a basic question, what do you do every day that helps you or ensures you to become better? It wouldn't be one thing, that's for sure. It, w- it would be a number of things. Okay. And uh, f- professionally, I read every day for about an hour. And that is spread across, sometimes it's just workbooks and sometimes it's just pure science. But it's a practice that I don't miss, never miss. It's a non-negotiable. So, and, and when do you do this? Because I've been playing around with times to read because... I'm, well, I'm doing courses as well, you know, like I did your course yeah, early on. I'm, yeah. I'm always just trying to learn from different people. And at the moment, I've found that I have to do it when I first wake up or else I make too many excuses. Yeah. I have to train, yeah. I have to post, I have to write a program. Totally. I, I do it from like six to seven. I'm kind of like still waking up. So I'm like having a yeah. coffee, but yeah. I think that's definitely better than me not doing it, which is what I would do for a long time. Absolutely. You do need to find, it's a bit like exercise when you're speaking to a client and well, where are you going to do it where it's not going to get hijacked by your day? Now, mm. I happen to love reading, so it's no problem for me to find time to read anywhere. Whereas I'm in a stage of life with three young kids where if I don't exercise first thing in the morning, then it's hijacked. And I don't yeah. feel comfortable doing it when you know my wife's doing everything for the kids. So, <laughs> I'm so, just going to go lift some weights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I will read at a different time of day. But earlier on, yeah, it was the I was, first thing I'd wake up, make coffee, and then read for an hour, and then I'd start my day. Mm. Now I train first thing in the morning. So I'm up and I train, and then I get that done. And then I can see clients and read and so forth. So I, I'm catching that all over the place. Yeah. Um, exercise is also a non-negotiable. Uh, I, I would exercise every day. Daily? Daily, without exception. Uh, so last year, I averaged over two hours a day, every day of the year. Wow. I was. I was. Uh, and sorry, what does your exercise look like? Because people might yeah. just think, oh, he's just you know lifting weights twenty four seven. But I know that yeah, that's not you. That's right. It's everything. Mm. So I, I happen to like cycling, and so I will cycle most days. But I diversify the fitness across a multitude of different modes. So I swim, I run, I cycle. Yeah. Um, I use an assault bike. I lift weights. I'll, I'll walk. If I feel like I'm really beaten up, I'll go for a 60 or 90 minute walk. Mm. But it's diverse. But I never, ever, ever, ever take a day off. Ever. So that practice of always reading and, and, and reading across different disciplines so that I have a higher chance of being able to solve problems that clients bring and looking after my health. That, that, that'll be the two big things and trying to be a nice guy that'd be the third guy <laughs> be nice <laughs> and 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 lastly this is just kind of my curiosity at the moment what do you do for your training now and then i promise we'll finish all right <laughs> but are you, are you still doing your two hours a day yeah. yeah 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 um so i try and accumulate about 10 hours a week in zone two so about 75 percent of my maximum heart rate that keeps lactate levels below two millimolars. That is the most potent stimulus to improve your mitochondrial health. So I try and accumulate that. And that could be a three hour bike ride on Saturday when I have more time and then it's an hour each day. So I commute to work on my bike, Mm. there's an hour. Um, I will do intervals at least one day a week. But pushing that glycolytic capacity at my age with no goal, it's well, how much do I really need to do (laughs) before it wipes me out? So it's all about doing the most amount of work without feeling I need to take a week off. And what sort of intervals are you doing? Because I remember when we were doing cardio intervals at, um, at your course, I was sprinting yeah. up the hill yeah. and then yeah. walking back down, sprinting back up. Yeah. I prefer sprint interval training like that or short intervals like 
15 seconds on, 15 seconds off, or 30 seconds on, 30 seconds on. You do that for blocks of, say, eight minutes, and then you rest and do eight minutes of that. I like that as opposed to doing, say, four minutes of work and then two minutes of rest. Yeah. But you know, you've got to do stuff that you don't like doing. So, But they're the three. I, I'm mixing the intervals up all the time. I'm not training for anything except to be, to be fit. Mm. Um, so a lot of zone two work. A session of interval training. I swim every day that I'm home, and that's just zone two. And when I'm lifting weights, I mix it up between doing strength endurance work, making sure I'm taking care of my stabilizers, uh, some maximal strength work and some kind of mid-range 10 to 20 reps. But I don't want it to make me too sore so then I can't run. Mm. So it's more about being strong and having muscle. Mm. And lastly, just before we go, where can people find you? Have you got anything coming up? What's next for you? Because I know that you're doing courses. That's right. Which were once face-to-face. Are you, are you, st- are you still doing face-to-face no, courses? Uh, only occasionally. Online? Only yeah. occasionally. And, and, and I think we'll have some middle of the year. Uh, and it'll be problem-solving exercise technique based. Mm. Um, and that just helps having a, a, another set of eyes to say, well, you need to do more soleus on your left because you're shifting this way and you need more serratus on your right. And you so that, that course will be about that, hopefully. Uh, but COVID meant that I turned all of my courses into something that was online. So tonybatagi.com is my website mm. and that has all of my course information and Tony Batagi on Instagram. Mm. If you're a nerd, then I post interesting scientific articles on Twitter and I'm Tony Batagi there as well. Twitter? Yeah. I'm not on Twitter actually. No, but- it's, it's, it's not designed visually. It's, <laughs> it's, but a lot of academics go there and they put their stuff up. Mm. before it's published so i i right. it's a really great resource if you know how to use it well i saw you post uh the plant-based protein yeah uh, versus whey protein yeah. and, and that was kind of my See, i tweeted that i tweeted, tweeted that, that first well. right yeah. i only saw the instagram uh, story because then you can actually read the article yeah because right? it takes well, it was just link. a screenshot i was like all right i'll take yeah. his word for it yeah. <laughs> i was doing my research you know, in, in instagram is not designed for academics <laughs> it's designed to look at things yeah and and even when you do see somebody posts a, a research article, oh that's great i can't click on it mm. twitter you just click on it and takes you to the paper yeah yeah yeah. okay well thanks so much for coming on the podcast man absolute I pleasure it. great catching up yeah i appreciate it well yeah that's us uh yeah tony thanks for your time and Hopefully I'll see you at your course very soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, mate.